There is a clear consensus for a public health approach to address the needs of people with substance use disorder. It is time to ensure our policies center and support that approach. In order to do so, we must decriminalize the possession and use of drugs. Hi, this is Charlotte Warren, and I'm here with my friend Zoe Brokus. And that was a quote from a report called A Better Path for Maine, The Case for Decriminalizing Drugs that you're going to hear about today. You're listening to Justice Radio, and this is Ending the Drug War in Maine. Today, we are very excited to have with us Winifred Tate, who is a professor of anthropology at Colby College and the director of the Maine Drug Policy Lab, um, and someone who has been working alongside us in the Maine uh, Drug Policy Coalition um, and was very much involved with this report that Charlotte just read the quote from. So welcome, Winifred. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. So. I just want to get us started with thinking about one of the pieces that you start the report off with. It's just so important for us to sort of all center ourselves around as we get started. And I'm just going to read the first part of a one of the paragraphs of the report where you say, the vast majority of people who use drugs do not experience problematic substance use. They use drugs recreationally, and it does not interfere with their daily life. Most people who try illegal drugs do not become dependent or develop substance use disorder. Many who use drugs regularly for a period of time in their life stop without any outside treatment or support. Talk about that for me. Why'd you include it? And, and just tell me a little about where that comes from. So I think it's really important to remember that the vast majority of people who use drugs are fine. They do so recreationally, does not negatively impact their life. Many people get great enjoyment from their use of substances. And the only problems happen when they are criminalized because these substances are criminalized. And one of the impacts of criminalization is that we can't do research very easily and find people. So we have a very distorted view of drug use because we focus on the people who are targeted by the criminal legal system, whose use is chaotic or becomes chaotic because of criminalization. And so we, in doing this research, focused on people who were involved in the criminal legal system because of criminalization, but I think it's really important to remember that that's a small portion of the population who uses drugs. Probably everybody uses drugs to some extent, um, if you really broaden the term, and I think there are so many people who use drugs in a way that is safe and and their relationship with substances feels healthy for them. In this report and the people that we interviewed I would say almost every single person, their relationship with drugs started very recreationally and very safely. And for many, not all, but many, 
something else got in the way that changed their relationship with drugs. Mm, Well said. So tell us about the report. What did you do? Why did you do it? So we worked on this report and Zoe did fantastic, phenomenal work um, interviewing people. And the report was really intended to show, try to start a conversation about the cost of criminalization and try to make visible what the harms and the damages of criminalization are in Maine communities. And so we looked in two realms. One is the financial realm, which is really important to understand, to start to have a conversation about how much this costs people in Maine and think about what other things we could do with that money. And the other part was thinking about what the social cost is, the the real harms that you can't put a dollar figure on. And that was more of the interview, getting into the life stories and really seeing the tragic consequences and how many years were taken away from Maine people and their families of life together and of positive life experiences. So we can start talking about the financial costs. And so, for example, we found out that Maine spends $8,427 for arrests, for arresting people, that most of these arrests, the majority of these arrests are for simple possession. And if you compare what almost $8,500 could buy, could be rent for seven months in Cumberland County, it could be public education, two-thirds of a year of a student in public school, or four months of intensive outpatient treatment for someone on main care. And that's just the cost of the arrest. Mm-hmm. We can't calculate the true financial cost of criminalization because of the huge bureaucracies and the range of institutions and people that are involved in this system that are making their money off the system. But to, to start to get a sense of the, the financial burden that that places, it's staggering. $8,500 per arrest. Yeah. You know, we do not have a huge amount of money sloshing around Maine, and so much of it is sucked up into this system. Mm-hmm. Thinking about housing um, people in prison, $54,000 a year, I think is the amount. And thinking about the money that that could be spent, all of the services that could provide, mm-hmm. um, and the ways in which people could have alternatives. Incarceration for one month is $4,200. So that could be treatment, it could be housing, it could be supports. And that's money that these social services don't have because they're being funneled into incarceration and punishment. I mean, I just think, I just have to say that, you know, I got an email from my nine-year-old daughter's teacher yesterday um, about activities they're going to do for Valentine's Day, but the school is is in a spending freeze. And so she had to ask parents to purchase supplies uh, so that our kids can have a Valentine's Day event, which of course everyone's happy to do. But like, we we don't have money for school craft activities. And yet we can spend $8,500 arresting somebody. Doesn't even, I mean, think of the people that get arrested and then, you know, they're not charged. I mean, there's more arrests than there are people sitting in jail, obviously. But also like, where does that number, like who comes up with that number? <laughs> you know, like what does that equal for a service? Like, is is it 
you know, cost per handcuff. I mean, it's just like such an insane amount of money. And it doesn't work, right? (laughs) And here we are all of these decades later still doing the same thing and it doesn't work. So I won't get us off on that track, but, but I just have to say that it would be one thing if we were saying, hey, you know what, you're offering this and it works okay, but it's really expensive. So maybe we should think about something else, but it like doesn't work. So Zoe, you did the interviews. So you got the stories from folks. The You guys really have done a report here that's qualitative and quantitative, right? That's starting a conversation. Zoe, can you share with our listeners, um, you know, what's the wisdom that you learned from the people closest to the problem? It was such, it, I mean, it was such an amazing experience to talk to people about this experience. You know, for many people that I talked to, they had either been in prison for a a long period of time and had gotten out in the 2015, 2016, and some even, even more recently, but really to a completely different community, a completely different environment. Um, Many people who who did start using illicit drugs again um, had no knowledge of how different the supply was. And people just really talked about what it was like in prison. And and you know, it it was for me, my focus was really to get through that message that prison is what got them uh, you know, off drugs or the the prison saved my life kind of narrative. Um, I wanted to see if we could push through that. And um, and in every every person's story that I talked to, we we did, we could. It would start there, you know, like, well, you know, I needed to go, I was out of control, I was doing, you know, I was a whatever, uh, people just like really negative feelings about themselves and uh how they really deserved this experience. Um, but then when we when we really kind of talked through it more, for many people it was either the first time they had any access to mental health services for an extended period of time, or the first time they had an opportunity to just slow down enough. You know, I think for people who are living either unhoused or not stably housed or just have instability in their life for one reason or another, whether that's from their childhood or or their own their own health needs. Um, you know, when you're always moving and you're kind of always in crisis mode, it's really hard to stop and think like, what do I want with my life? It's hard to dream. It's hard to like think past that. And so I think for a lot of people, it did provide that time, right? Like you, you're not doing a whole lot, but sitting. And I think many people were able to kind of realize, I mean, I, I don't know if we, if we made like major breakthroughs, um, but I think a lot of people were able to kind of get past that message of like, oh, it actually wasn't prison. Like that was actually pretty awful. Uh, I saw some horrific things. I, you know, detoxed on a cell floor for 10 days with, you know, no blankets. Um, you know, it wasn't that experience that, that is giving me 
this, this drive that I have now, or this change in relationship with substances now, uh, it's actually within myself. And it's like the strength that I found from reading some books or meeting some, some other people and finding a community or being able to stabilize on medication that I could never access before. Um, and I think that is part of this, this other piece that we want to talk about, which is like, why is that the only place people are able to access services and resources? And, and is that a therapeutic environment where, where that should be happening? Uh, because we keep hearing that as an excuse for why we need to criminalize drug use and why people need to go to prison because that's where they can access services and that's where they can, you know, get better or whatever the, the terminology is that, that they seem to keep using. Mm. So other interviews that we did were with healthcare providers, and they answered that question resoundingly with a no, that incarceration is not a therapeutic environment, that it interrupts treatment, that it does not provide the kind of care and environment that people need to recover, to get the kind of medical care that they need. And I think that we need to really, one of the things that the report is trying to do is to help people understand that jails and prisons are becoming the fix for a lot of social problems. Mm -hmm. But that's because we don't have the wherewithal to actually fund the institutions that would solve those problems in a better, less harmful, more positive, more community-based way. So we're doing with our jails and prisons in Maine, what um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls the prison fix, which is you have a problem with housing, you have a problem with mental illness, you have a problem with chaotic substance use, you have a problem with poverty. Mm -hmm. And instead of trying to solve those problems in a community in a way that would benefit everybody, you say, we're gonna channel all of these resources in this easy pipeline to prisons because it's easy, because they're there, because we have this attraction to the authority figures that run them and we wanna take their view of what's possible. But this is not what these institutions are designed to do. It's not what they do well or transparently or in a way that doesn't inflict tremendous additional harm. And so I think we really need to, to reject this narrative that prisons and jails are a place for care. They are not. They are there to take people out of community as punishment. Exactly. So you are listening to Justice Radio, and specifically you're listening to Charlotte Warren, Zoe Brokus, and Winifred Tate talk about ending the drug war in Maine. So, Winifred, I want to ask you... Um, what are the big takeaways from this research? If somebody doesn't have the time to read the report, what do you want them to know? I want them to know that criminalizing drugs is expensive, it's harmful, and it doesn't work. And I want them to know that there are alternatives, that there are places where decriminalization has been tried, like Portugal and has had tremendous success because decriminalization allows investments in the social services 
that provide the real supports that communities need to thrive. Um, and I think that this report also tells us that the real experts on drug use and drug policy are people who use drugs and the people who support them in a public health capacity. And those are the people we need to listen to and get guidance from if we want effective policies for people who need help, which is a small subsection of the people who use substances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Say more, Winifred, I'm very intrigued by we need to redefine who counts as experts in this discussion. And I think that's so important. Can you say more about your experience and who have you seen historically be viewed as the experts and and why people on the, you know, doing the public health response, why should they be the experts? So historically, it's a vicious circle. Because drug use is a crime, the people who are authorized to speak about it are law enforcement because they are the experts in crime. But what we know is that substance use is a normal part of the human experience. It has been since humans emerged. And that for people who have problematic substance use, that is a medical issue that requires a public health response. But in order to get people recognized as experts, we need to move the conversation out of the criminal legal system and into the public health domain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also think that there is a real need to recognize people who use substances as the experts on their experience. I cannot tell you how frustrating it is to be testifying in a criminal justice committee alongside advocates who have lived this on the ground and have the people turn to the former cop and say, well, will you tell us about what it is like to take drugs? Mm -hmm. He doesn't know. He knows what it's like to arrest people who use drugs. That's mm -hmm. a very different situation. And I think it's time that we recognize the experts are in our community and that they have the wealth of experience and knowledge to really help guide us to a different path. And I think Zoe's work um, is tremendously important in the interviews, but also in the experience of working with um, a harm reduction approach that can tell us directly what people need on the ground in a tremendously changing and um, a volatile situation with the drug supply being what it is. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we when we started our conversation here today, Zoe shared with us a story of, you know, someone that that she's been working with um, who, who's now going to spend a, a, you know, a substantial amount of time in jail. And Zoe, I would think that because of your daily and daily for years work on the front lines, helping people walk that path to being cared for, to living a sustaining life, et cetera, et cetera, you have that intimate knowledge, that understanding of what pushes people to the edge 
And how do you help bring them back? Mm -hmm. Can you share a little about what's missing in the conversation when folks are discussing this, let's just say under the dome in Augusta? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, there is so, it is so complex and it also doesn't need to be this difficult. You know, I think it's like people, I've just really been feeling recently that it's just about everybody wants to feel um, like they have a purpose, like they're helpful, like they're part of a community. Um, And we have seen in the work that we do as we bring in more and more people into our organization who are people who are using drugs, um, that the drug use doesn't necessarily stop, um, but the, the negative consequences that come along with drug use that is attempting to take the pain away of sleeping outside, feeling alone, feeling like nobody cares about them, feeling completely stigmatized and criminalized. You have a, you know, criminal record, so you can't get a job and you can't get an apartment and, you know, it's, and you're just stuck in this cycle. And then use tends to escalate. I mean, with anyone, I mean, you know, and, and so what we've seen is this really beautiful thing as we bring people in and, bring them into our team and pay them for their work. And, you know, it's like the, that, that negative stuff or the harmful stuff or the stuff that maybe isn't the healthiest starts to kind of fade away. Um, And, and we see just the person feel like they're a human again. I mean, we treat people who are using drugs, like they are like, you know, monsters that need to be locked in cages. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we know that there are many, many people who are sitting in prison right now with trafficking charges for personal use amounts of drugs. Um, and when you are told over and over again that you're not worthy and that you are dangerous and, um, you know, you need to be locked away in a cage, you start to feel it. And and I think with with my friend who, you know, is is sitting in jail right now, probably feeling really awful. Um, it, it's like, number one, I think we need to recognize that people use drugs and that needs to be OK. Um, he is somebody that if he was allowed to use drugs safely, um, he would. But because he has been stuck in this cycle for years and years of in probation, in prison, off probation, running from the law, whatever, you know, it's like constantly when you're able to get something that takes that pain away, you tend to do it. And and maybe it's a little bit more recklessly done than you would if you weren't in that situation. But for so many people, it's like you could just use drugs and have fun with it and not have it have all of these negative impacts if there wasn't this cycle of criminalization constantly circling people um, who are already involved. It's like, if you're involved, if if you live in a small town and, and the cops know who you are, know your family, like it doesn't even matter. They're gonna pull you over every time they see you just because, you know, or they're gonna search your backpack 
just because. And um, and I think that that the stories that our friends and our community members have to share are the things that could actually really help us change policy, change the way things are happening. When I look at the way, you know, custody battles happen within DHHS and and moms who are who I see like stable in their use, stable in their life, parenting, showing up, being present, feeling really, really good. And then they have their child taken away from them and they get charged with child endangerment. I mean, that is like the amount of harm and trauma on the mother, on the child, on the entire family. Um, you know, it's like that that just sets everybody back and and creates this horrible dynamic. And yet she has the answers for what we could do differently. And nobody's going to ask her and she's not going to say it because she knows she has to sit in that room when she's in a meeting with DHHS and say nothing. Because if she speaks, her biggest fear is that they're going to take the baby away from her mother, you know, or put, put her baby with, with a foster family that she doesn't know. You know, so it's like, we have this um, incredible amount of knowledge and wisdom from people who have had these experiences and we don't even bother, you know, they're not they're not even welcome at the table. And it took us long enough to, to kind of be invited to some of the tables, but you know, like what we really need is people who have had these experiences come in and say, no, that's not, you know, we don't need it like that. We need this and we need a system that does, you know, I mean, I've talked to people who like have it figured out, you know, and we just, our, our government, our politicians, whatever you want to call them, leaders, I guess, just don't seem to have any interest in that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think just to conclude, we can try to calculate the dollar cost of these systems, but we're never going to actually be able to capture the true harm and the deep suffering caused by the these systems if we don't listen to the people directly impacted. Mm -hmm. And I think I really want to honor that and, and hold up those stories and, and the cost and the harms done by the system that we can't put a dollar amount on. Mm -hmm. Very, very well said. Great conversation. We are at the end of our time. Um, I want our listeners to be able to find the report. So I think the best way if you put into your browser a better path for Maine, Winifred Tate and Zoe Brokus, you will find this report. That will get you there. I'm sure of it. And but I have to acknowledge our institutional partners, the uh, Maine ACLU and the Maine Center for Economic Policy. Megan Sway and James Mile in particular were really critical co-authors on this report. And you can find a, a downloadable PDF on the ACLU of Maine's website. Um, and if you follow them on the social media platforms, you can also um, get to it that way as well. Perfect. That is a much better way for people to access. Or Google it. <laughs> well, I just am so thankful for this conversation. And I know Zoe and I were very excited that we got to have our gal pal, Colby Professor Winifred Tate, 
thank you. And um, I always like spending time with both of you and uh, looking forward to our next episode. Awesome. So again, you've been listening to Ending the Drug War in Maine as part of Justice Radio. Thank you. (laughs) 